Hello, and welcome to 1867 and All That, episode 13, Shotgun Marriage. Fifteen hundred angry Montrealers amassed in the Champ de Mars, a loud, heaving crowd venting its rage. It was early evening on the 25th of April, 1849. Only a few hours earlier, the Governor General, Lord Elgin, signed into law one of the most controversial bills ever passed in a Canadian Parliament, the Rebellion Losses Bill. This law would financially compensate lower Canadians who had suffered damages in the rebellions of 1837 and 1838. That there were losses could not be doubted. Houses had burned, the militia had pillaged. They were times of rebellion and repression. But the real question was, who, if anyone, should be compensated? And for the Montrealers gathered in the Champ de Mars, the real iniquity of the whole thing was that it was entirely possible, indeed likely, that the bill would compensate rebels, that treason would pay a salary. Of course, that isn't how many other, mostly French Catholic Lower Canadians saw it. And the government of the day, under the leadership of Louis Lafontaine and Robert Baldwin, had been voted in by these people and many others. They controlled a majority in the assembly. They controlled the government. But the truly amazing part happened when the governor had affixed his name to the bill, when he had acceded to the wishes of his executive, which was controlled by a majority in the assembly, even though it would seem to compensate the very rebels that the British had fought to put down 10 years before. The governor, Lord Elgin, had escaped into his carriage, but not before crowds of angry onlookers hurled vegetables and rocks and chased him out of town. Now, as dusk settled on the city, a crowd had amassed again to express their anger. Speakers howled from the rostrum, igniting the crowd in indignation. Finally, having heard enough, one man, Alfred Perry, stepped up before the crowd. He doused the torch that the speakers were using to light their written words. The time for speeches is over, he cried. Follow me to the Parliament House. And follow him, they did, roaring through the streets of Montreal to the Assembly buildings. The House was in session, and the Assembly members were in their spots, carrying on with usual business in an evening session. But not for long. Rocks smashed through the tall windows. Men crashed through the doors and invaded the meetings, shouting their defiance. With brickbats and cudgels, they bashed at the gas pipes that fed the building's lights. Someone reached for the giant ceremonial mace and hurled it through a window. With torches in hand, somehow someone lit a fire, and the escaping gas fed the fire with abandon. In the midst of the chaos, the Speaker of the Assembly tried to maintain decorum. He even managed to officially adjourn the sitting, and the members filed out behind him even as the fire spread all around. Chaos reigned in their wake. The long drape curtains caught fire. Legislative councillors who were upstairs had to slide down wooden arches like fire poles to escape the flames. As the Assemblymen emptied out into the street, the buildings went up in flames. 
Sir Alan McNabb, he who had come to Toronto's defense back in 1837, a man who was as angry as anyone about the rebellion losses bill, himself barely escaped. In his arms, he clutched a painting of Queen Victoria rescued from the fire. How had it come to this? With Parliament in flames, with Tory mobs angry at what they saw as French domination, payments to rebels. Only a decade before, the rebellion had been put down. The loyalist side had won. And yet, here they were, in a childish tantrum of defiance at their defeat. What on earth had happened since the rebellions? Now that we've finished with rebellions, it's time to move on to the next big story of Canadian political history that followed in their wake. Sometimes this is talked about as the coming of responsible government or the fight for responsible government. That is, the fight to make government in Canada responsible to or responsive to or controlled by the people and the electors of Canada. It is really the essential story of how Canada won for itself the kind of parliamentary government enjoyed in Britain. And it is fundamentally important to understanding how our government works today. I would even say it's probably more important than the story of confederation that usually gets all the attention. For me, the real arc of the story, the real trajectory of change, is this move from the defeat in the rebellions the turn away from the Republican option favored by the rebels of 1837 and 1838, Louis-Joseph Papineau and William Lyon Mackenzie and others, to the creation of a new kind of governing system, which ultimately led to that angry year of 1849 when a Tory mob burned down Parliament. In that switch from the victory of the Loyalists to their vengeful anger in 1849, is a story about the creation of modern parliamentary government in Canada. And it turned out that in 1849 at least, a lot of loyalist Tories were not at all pleased by what having parliamentary democratic government meant, especially when they were in opposition and the government could pass this odious rebellion losses bill. But okay, let's get back to the end of the 1830s, where we left off last week. The rebellions are over, Reform is in disarray. Loyalists are triumphant. The Rebellion Losses Bill isn't even a gleam in the eye of most reformers who were, instead, despondent. Back in 1839, the fate of the Canadas was about to change. And a lot of the credit for that, not always correctly, is given to our old friend, Lord Durham. When we last saw him, our very short-term Governor-General, Lord Durham, was leaving on the ship the Inconstant. It was early November, and he was leaving North America in a huff. His so-called friends in the British government had revoked his laws, banishing several leading rebels to Bermuda and threatening other exiles with pain of death on their return. This act had caused no amount of headache back in Britain, and the Whig government felt they could do nothing but repeal it. Radical Jack, as Durham was sometimes known, was anything but pleased. And despite the fact that he had brought with him to North America a host of valuables and an entourage that included his very own orchestra, planning to stay quite some time clearly, he had up and resigned his post. He didn't even wait for a replacement, but instead set sail for home. 
General Colborne watched him go from the docks, even as, we now know, the Hunter's Lodges were about to launch their second rebellion. When Durham arrived back in England, he immediately set to work on a great report that would, he thought, explain the whole situation of the problem of the Canadas and offer solutions to set the whole colonies on the right footing. He had, in fact, taken with them to Canada several assistants who had set to work on the report while they were in the Canadas, investigating all the many problems as they saw them. And some of these appointments had caused Durham no end of trouble, especially his appointment of Edward Gibbon Wakefield. In the colony, Wakefield had befriended some of the moderate lower Canadian reformers. But back home, Wakefield was known chiefly as a rake and a cad. In 1826, Wakefield caused a sensation when he abducted the 15-year-old daughter of a silk manufacturer and forced her to marry him, literally picking her up from school and pretending that her parents had agreed to the whole scenario. He fled to the continent only to be apprehended and brought back to England. For this, he was convicted and spent three years in jail. But while in jail, he had taken an interest in the question of landholding in the colonies, you know, as you do, landholding in Australia, New Zealand, and the Canadas. And he'd penned an influential book on the topic, albeit under a pen name. The ever-confident Durham had decided that Wakefield was just the man to take with him when he went to Canada, one of the many decisions that baffled some observers. Nevertheless, back in England at the end of 1838, Durham holed himself up on his estate to write his report. And in early 1839, extracts of his great report were leaked to the Times of London, probably by Wakefield. What was Britain to do with the Canadas? What had caused the rebellions and how could another be prevented in the future? Well, Lord Durham seemed to have the answers. According to Durham in his famous report, there was one big cause to the rebellions, and it is one that has gone down in the lore of Canadian history, probably known by many people who know nothing else about Durham or the rebellions except his single phrase. That is, that the rebellions showed, quote, two nations warring in the bosom of a single state. Aside from the great fact of using the wonderful Anne of Green Gable-ish word bosom and inserting it into political analysis, what Durham was doing, and the main finding of his report, was to say that this conflict had not primarily been about politics and the Constitution. Remember, Papineau and the Patriot had been obsessed with their critique of the Constitution, with the demand for liberty, for an elected legislative council, and the Assembly's control of spending and the government in general. In his great report, Durham claimed that all of this was a mere smokescreen. The fuller quotation from his report begins with Durham claiming that he had initially thought he was going to find this democratic struggle. As Durham put it, I expected to find a contest between a government and a people, but instead he had found two nations warring in the bosom of a single state. He found a struggle not of principles, but of races. So strong stuff. And he went on to give plenty of examples of why this was so. Durham found French Canadians to be too medieval, too 
backward, too wedded to cultural traditions inimical to progress. And this brought them again and again into conflict with the British immigrants who wanted progress to build canals, to develop the land and encourage immigration. As he put it, the French looked on the province as the patrimony of their own race. They viewed it not as a country to be settled, but as one already settled. Needless to say, none of this analysis went down well in Lower Canada then, or really ever since. This is especially the case when it came to what Durham said should be done about the problem. How to solve it? In the long term, Durham argued that the only real solution was to make the colony British, to thoroughly assimilate the French into the laws and customs of Britain. And in the short term, the best way to get this process moving was to force a union of the Canadas to join Upper and Lower Canada into a single united province of Canada. A shotgun marriage, if you will. If this sounds familiar, it should, because remember, this idea of joining the colonies had been around for a long time. They'd only really been separated back in 1791, but the scheme kept reappearing. It was, remember, a scheme to force a union in 1822 that had led to a huge petition movement against union. And this was one of the moments that had led Louis-Joseph Papineau to become the spokesperson for his people. And yet, here it was again. Union. Join Upper and Lower Canada. Let's hang on to that thought for a moment. We'll come back to it. But first, we need to deal with one other major recommendation in the Durham Report that sparked a great deal of interest in the Canadas especially. And this one wasn't nearly as unappealing to reformers. This was Durham's recommendation that the government provide for a responsible government in the colonies. Now, he didn't call it responsible government, but it is essentially what he meant. Durham thought that Robert Baldwin and his father, whom he had spoken to and corresponded with, had a good point when they argued that the colonists should be trusted to govern themselves in domestic affairs. Durham argued that the British government needn't fear such a move. It didn't mean inventing any new theory of government. It just meant allowing the colonies to administer, quote, their government on those principles which have been found perfectly efficacious in Great Britain. The Crown could retain its prerogatives, but, he argued, the Crown must, on the other hand, submit to the necessary consequences of representative institutions. And if it has to carry on the government in unison with the representative body, like the assembly, it must consent to carry it on by means of those in whom that representative body has confidence. In other words, as the Baldwins argued, and will continue to argue as we'll see in the rest of this season, responsible government was the most loyal request of all. What they essentially wanted was exactly the kind of government that the British already enjoyed at home, but they wanted it in a colony. The Durham report caused a sensation, at first when it was leaked to the public in the Times, and then even more so when news of its recommendations reached the Canadas. Everyone could find something in it to like and to hate. For Les Canadiens, there was the insulting cultural stereotypes and the plan for assimilation and, dreaded worst of all, union. But on the other hand, there was this idea of self-government, of responsible government. 
That didn't sound too bad. For the English in Lower Canada, the idea of union sounded absolutely splendid, and responsible government might be fine. But what kind of a role, they wondered, would the French play in this government? As for the Upper Canadians, they were a great many who liked the idea of responsible government in principle, though exactly how this would work remained to be seen, especially in a union with Lower Canada, about which some feared that the concerns of the Upper Colony would be washed away. For reformers in Upper Canada, especially moderate reformers, the Durham Report was a lifeline. Discredited by the rebellion, the victims of harassment and guilt by association, they yearned for some way to achieve their political goals by peaceful and loyal means. And here was the great Lord Durham, essentially agreeing with them. You couldn't be accused of disloyalty if you asked for a replica of the British Constitution in the New World, and one recommended in a government report, could you? Still, historians in Canada have tended to overplay the importance of the Durham Report. It makes for fun and accessible reading, it speaks in its calls for a, a union of the Canadas, its discussion of responsible government, about exactly the issues that dominated politics in these years. But I'm especially convinced by a now pretty old work by uh, the historian Jed Martin, who argues that for all its verbosity and farsightedness, the Dur Durham Report is not, I repeat, was not responsible for the actions that the British government took next. Durham was, by this point, rather an embarrassment to the Whig government. They had no intention, not yet anyway, of following through on plans for a responsible government. Lord John Russell, he of the Ten Resolutions, remember him from episode 5, saying no to the Patriot's 92 resolutions? Well, Russell is still around and was in fact colonial secretary. Russell believed that it simply was not possible for a colonial assembly to have responsible government. The sovereignty of the crown could not be divided. The governor in a colony could not be responsible both to the colonial assembly and to instructions from the imperial government. For Russell, it was instructions from London that mattered, and so there would be no responsible government. That was that. Lord Durham did suggest a union of the Canadas, and in fact the British government decided that this is exactly what needed to be done. But they decided this, in fact, before Durham made his report, and their methods for the union, the way they would make it work, did not follow Durham's advice. The Whig government had its own plan and followed what they would. The fact that Durham saw union as a possible solution, and that this is also the solution the Whig government chose, is just a correlation. And I shouldn't need to remind you, correlation is not causation. So let's put Durham in our back pocket for now. He was and remains important, but this importance mostly has to do with how colonial politicians would use his report, use his support for responsible government for their own aims. He was a propaganda tool, a reference point for some to say, hey, look, your man Durham argued for exactly what we want. A brief side note, poor Lord Durham, for all his petulance and pomposity, still, he hadn't enjoyed the easiest of lives. His father had died of tuberculosis when he was only five, when Durham was only five, not his father, obviously. Durham had married quite young, only to have his first wife also die of tuberculosis after three years of marriage. Although he married again, 
all of the children from his first marriage and more besides, four in total, would also die of tuberculosis. Once Durham was home, his own health worsened. By early 1840, he had essentially retreated to his estate where he died, a relatively young man, in July of 1840. As we'll see, coming to Canada as a governor general in these years seemed not to be good for your health. It also wasn't necessarily good for your ego, as the next man to fill the role would soon find out. Charles Edward Poulet Thompson was not the kind of man normally to be made a governor. The British colonial service was staffed with second and third sons of the British aristocracy, looking for a bit of wider world experience, to prove themselves and to return to Parliament perhaps, to see a little of the world, to offer a bit of service. Thompson was no humble man, but he came from a merchant family, and not even the wealthiest of merchant families. The family company was involved in the Baltic and Russian trade, and that is where he got his start. But Thompson early on became a liberal and a reformer, and he turned to politics, running for parliament and being supported by radicals like Jeremy Bentham and Joseph Hume. He was an advocate of free trade, which definitely made him unpopular at first with the colonial timber merchants who depended on colonial preferences to send lumber from North America back to England and who intensely appreciated, thank you very much, the preferential tariffs which gave lumber from British North America such an advantage over continental imports. By the late 1830s, Charles Thompson had proven himself to be a good Whig and a strong proponent of liberal reforms. Most recently, he had headed up the Board of Trade in London, introducing free market reforms to liberalize the empire's trade policies. And so, while he was not an aristocrat, the government turned to Thompson in 1839 to take over as Governor-in-Chief of British North America. Poor John Colborne had been back in his role as interim governor after Durham left, always on hand to fill in, put down rebellions, that sort of thing, until the British government appointed someone else to fill the permanent role. And if you think Colborne was upset at being looked over, at not being appointed governor in his own right, you'd be right. Nonetheless, Thompson was the new man, and he arrived in Lower Canada in October of 1839. He immediately began to cobble together the strategy of pacifying the Canadas and uniting them into a single colony. For this was the cabinet decision. They simply had to do away with the incessant problems that had so plagued Canadian politics before the rebellions the conflict between the Patriot-controlled assembly and the governor and the rest of the government. Others had before now suggested a union of the Canadas, but now, with the lower Canadian constitution suspended and the more radical of reformers in disarray, this was the policy again. Thompson received his instructions to guide union through the Canadas with as little controversy as possible. What's more, he extracted a promise that if he did his job well, he would be raised to the nobility. It's always good to have an incentive. Under different circumstances, Thompson might have had some of the attributes to win him affection in Lower Canada. He spoke French fluently, had traveled extensively in France, was a self-professed gourmet, and was, of course, a reforming liberal. But these weren't normal times, and Thompson made enemies almost before he arrived. 
Certainly, he created a great deal of resentment by quickly pushing through a plan to join Upper and Lower Canada. Thompson arrived in Quebec on October 19th, hosted a soiree to introduce himself to the locals, and then traveled upriver to Montreal a few days later. By November 11th, he was convening a meeting of the special council in the midst of an early winter blizzard. It didn't matter that some couldn't make the meeting, Thompson proceeded anyway. The special council was, remember, that body of governor-appointed officials who now governed Lower Canada in absence of a proper constitution. Within only a couple of days, the special council had passed a bill to join Lower and Upper Canada with only three members dissenting. The proposed terms of union were not the kind to elicit much sympathy among les Canadiens outside the special council. Thompson's proposed union of the two Canadas gave each colony equal representation in the new assembly. At the time, remember, the population of Lower Canada was about 650,000, while Upper Canada's population was roughly only 450,000. And when you remember that parts of Lower Canada were English-speaking, it was clear that the union was meant to give a disproportionate voice to the British. What's more, the new United Province would take on the debts of both former colonies. And of course, the newer Upper Canada had a much larger debt owing to its large program of expenditures to grow the colony, to build roads, and especially to build canals. These were all of the things that Upper Canadians and the British in Lower Canada were keen to take on, public expenditures to expand and to progress. Yet for many Lower Canadians, this seemed like they were taking on the debt of a profligate sister colony. What's more, the proposed United Colony would also have a permanent civil list not controlled by the Assembly. This would mean that the weapon that Papineau and the Patriot had used to control governors or to threaten governors, do what we want or we won't pay for government, would no longer exist. Even if some version of the Patriot managed to get control of the new assembly, the body itself would seem to have been defanged. It wasn't long before the attacks came. The lower Canadian press had been hampered by the rebellion. The more radical of the Patriot papers were shut down. Most strenuous radicals were in exile. But this didn't mean that the colony was shorn of spokespeople keen to resist. And pretty soon, Charles Edward Poulet Thompson, the new Governor General of British North America, would feel the sting of their insults at least. Now, the name didn't help. Poulet might have been his third name, but it was so close to poulet, the French word for chicken, that, of course, this is what he was called, Governor Poulet, Poulet Thompson. Now, it's a little juvenile to be sure, but I guess you work with what you have. The attacks were political, crying out at the injustice of the Union scheme, but they were also personal. What were the British thinking of sending this man Poulet to govern them? Wasn't it an insult that he wasn't even a member of the nobility? Did the British think so little of Les Canadiens? And then there were the references to Thompson's sensuality. Thompson liked to live life, to eat well, to drink copiously, and although he was a single man, or maybe perhaps because he was a single man, he was said to like the ladies considerably. The press spread rumors about his possible dalliances with local women, including of the married kind. And it should be said that the rumors went with Thompson to Upper Canada, so there might have been something to them. 
leaving a largely impotent but disgruntled Lower Canada behind him. Thompson moved on to Toronto later in November to take over government in that colony. Here, the Constitution had not been suspended, and so Thompson still had to work with both the Legislative Council and the Assembly. And although not all the Upper Canadians were necessarily hostile to the Union plan in principle, there were many doubts in the upriver colony about the wisdom of the Union plan and what it would mean to different religious groups and political alliances. So Thompson was forced to build alliances and to try to appease the various different political factions, Reform as well as Tory. Thompson came with promises and presence. For the Reformers who were in a minority in the Assembly, he offered assurances Assurances that the hope that they had found in Lord Durham's report and its promises of local self-government, of a kind of responsible government, might be realized in the person of Thompson himself. While Thompson felt that Durham had gone too far in his rhetoric, Thompson still believed that he ought to govern under the auspices of Durham's general principles. Certainly in local matters, he was prepared to be led by a majority in the assembly. And to show his goodwill, he immediately set about wooing more moderate reformers. He invited onto his executive, Robert Baldwin, the same Robert Baldwin who had resigned from Francis Bond Head's executive back in 1836. Baldwin, despite misgivings, there are always misgivings with Baldwin, accepted the position. Now we're gonna come back to Baldwin again next week. But for now, it's important to know that this was part of Thompson's scheme to bring the reformers on side with the general union scheme. Thompson also removed one hardline family compact man from the executive, giving him a spot as a judge as kind of compensation, and he replaced him with a more moderate Tory, William Henry Draper. Again, we'll come back to him later too. But Thompson wasn't done because the stiffer resistance actually came from the Tories. They rightly foresaw that they had something to fear from a union of the Canadas. While the Tories in Lower Canada looked forward to being rescued from their permanent minority status, the Tories in Upper Canada feared that they would lose their own relative good position. What would happen, many asked themselves, if the reformers in Upper Canada joined forces with the reformers in Lower Canada? It was entirely possible surely it was likely that the reformers would do this. And then, even though the reformers might only win a minority of seats in Upper Canada, if they combined with what was surely to be the large number of reformers in Lower Canada, they might govern the colony with impunity. Shouldn't they be concerned about this? Well, yes, in fact, they should, and they weren't wrong, as we'll see. But Thompson had some goodies to deliver to help smooth the Union Bill, and at least partly make it seem like Union might not be entirely terrible. For the British government had allowed Thompson to promise a very large, a 1.5 million pound loan to the Canadas. This would allow the new United Province to complete the building projects, especially the delayed and indebted Welland Canal, which just about all of the politicians in the colony believed was absolutely essential to ensure progress. And although Thompson didn't announce the loan publicly, he hinted at its largesse. Thompson didn't only stick to these matters. He even tried to sort out the mess of the clergy reserves problem. 
he tried to find the most likely compromise of spreading the wealth around, assuring that the profits from much of the reserves could go to the Church of England, but also find support for the Church of Scotland and even some of the Methodists whom he also wooed. Now, on this last point, all of his plans would come to naught. The British government, by the time he got his plan back to England, was in the hands of the Tories, and they promptly handed back the majority of the lands to the Anglicans. So, the clergy reservist problem isn't going anywhere for now. Thompson did finally manage to get a union bill through the Upper Canadian Legislative Council and Assembly, and he sent it back to London for review and passage through the British Parliament. Once in London, the British cabinet set to work at it, making their own recommendations, until finally, in August of 1840, the bill to unite Upper and Lower Canada into a single province of Canada passed Parliament. The Canadas, Upper and Lower Canada, were dead. Long live Canada. All seemed to be working against the former rebels at this point, and especially those in Lower Canada who had supported the Patriot cause, if not their rebellious means. The Union Bill was interpreted as an insult to les Canadiens. There was the unequal representation problem. There was the fact that the whole thing was being forced upon them, pushed through the wholly undemocratic special council while the regular constitution was quashed. There was the not insignificant issue of the Upper Canadian debt that they would now be saddled with. And to top it off, there were two further indignities. There was no way the new province was going to have a capital in the former Lower Canada, either at Quebec or at Montreal. Torontonians wanted it, but even they were disappointed. Instead, to everyone's disgust, except the locals of course, the capital of the new province would be in the loyalist city of Kingston. And when elections were eventually held and the members of the government took up their seats in the new council and assembly, the official version of events was to be recorded not in French, nor even in English and French, but in English only. The union really was, for a great many in Lower Canada, hard to swallow. But it was coming regardless. And good news for Le Poulet, Charles Thompson too. As soon as he managed to get the union scheme through the Canadas, he received his reward. The incentive had worked. Charles Thompson became now Lord Sydenham. The radical merchant politician had made his way up the slippery pole of British statesmanship. Now though, he was going to have to govern this new united province. And that could turn out to be a whole lot trickier than creating it in the first place. so much for listening uh, as we move on to the story of responsible government if you're liking what you're hearing please do leave a five-star review wherever you get your podcasts and tell a friend about the show the whole point is to get a lot more canadians to know about some of these great stories from our history and you can play a big role in spreading the message feel free to to send me a message if you're liking it let me know what you think i'm always happy to hear from you and you can get all the contact details on uh, the podcast website www 1867allthat.com Next week, 
we find out about what happens when the new Lord Sydenham and a whole bevy of newly elected assemblymen head to Kingston. Robert Baldwin will be there with his responsible government idea. He hasn't changed his mind. But Lord Sydenham will try to hold Baldwin off and instead create a whole new kind of political system for the Canadas. And we'll also see what comes of a new kind of political love letter that a man named Francis Hinks writes to an ambitious young Napoleon-like reformer named Louis Hippolyte Lafontaine. The two will take their writing letters back and forth, and the bromance of Hinks Lafontaine, soon to be Hinks Lafontaine Baldwin, is the germ of a new kind of politics for the candidates. 1867 and all that is created, written, and narrated by me, Christopher Dummett. The sound engineering is by Rob Viscardis at Paradigm Pictures. And thanks to the generous support of Trent Online and Trent University. Until next time, remember, there's a lot of all that to 1867 and all that.